But now we don't have any value. Hey, it's your death sentence here. Um, okay, if you've been watching the news, uh, everything's turned to shit again. We seem to be doing a hell of a lot of episodes where we start that way lately. Uh, like in the last hour, I think kids are going to be forced to pray in schools in America, which is apparently where all our listeners are. So look forward to that. Um, luckily, we have someone on who's going to sort all this out for us because she's written a really amazing book. Like uh, one that really kind of blew me away. Um, it's called There Are More Things. It's been blurbed by half the people we've talked about on this show, people like Vincent Bevins, who wrote uh, The Jakarta Method, which is, you, know, you kind of have to have read that to listen to this uh, podcast. Uh, Amelia Horgan, who wrote um, that really good book about work, the title of which I'm blanking on. Uh, lot, yeah, this has just been a, a really great book, and a lot of people are liking it. It's called There Are More Things. Uh, Yara Rodriguez Fowler is the author. Uh, she's with us right now uh, from, I assume, London? Yeah, I'm in North London, Haringey. Ah, okay. I I briefly lived in London for maybe like two years. I really count myself as a Londoner. I was in Islington, but not like posh Islington. It was like a garbage one-bedroom flat above a... Greek restaurant. It was and, and a porn theater, porn theater and Greek restaurant. It was horrible. Oh, um, yeah. not too far from where I am. Yeah, I, mean, I forget where Harringay is. Uh, is that more north of Islington, or am I thinking of something else? It's a little bit north of here, but um, it's got all the Turkish and Greek diaspora. So I think with your Greek restaurant, you're probably in the same kind of. Cool. Bit. So yeah, did they did a. The Greek restaurants in your area also play like screeching atonal music at like three AM on a Tuesday, or was that just my one? I think that might just have been your one. Yeah, they, they were they were an odd bunch. Good mm. food, but it was. Uh... <laughs> but um, I mean, yeah, London is kind of a big part of your book, so but that's kind of why I'm bringing it up. We're not just like chatting about uh, London here. Um, although, like people from London generally do chat about things like what your favorite tube line is, I noticed you had the "What's your favorite tube line?" question come up in the book. Yeah. So and there's only one right answer to that, and it's the Victoria line. It is, yeah. Mm. Um, but okay, so if you didn't, if you excluded Victoria line, if that collapsed or something, what would oh. your second favorite be? Oh God. Um... I have really mixed feelings about this, uh, and this is in the book too, but the central line's really fast and it covers a lot of ground, but it's so dirty. It's so mm. dirty in there. Yeah. Um, and the northern line is the line I grew up in. I'm from South London, Balham. So mm. I've got, I feel like I, like, I feel like I can smell the northern line. <laughs> yeah, there's nice like the Camden's I like the Camden stop on Northern Line I think that's a, that's a nice one yeah yeah uh, but uh yeah like Northern Line kind of gets under your skin doesn't it yeah it really like, does yeah I like the circle line not for any particular reason just because it's logical it like makes sense to have a big circle that goes around the uh, city that just like appeals to the autistic side of me where it's like okay this this makes sense it's logical it, it's all it's all crap but it makes a lot of sense uh the jubilee line worst line of all i agree the jubilee line like whenever i get off at canary wharf and it's like oh the infrastructure is really nice here like it just really upsets me stressed me out yeah and it's it's so like dystopian i think they they used that uh station in a bunch of movies where they want to show like a clean weird like fascist future i think it's it's in yeah. a few star wars movies it's in a star wars movie i think is it rogue I, one maybe i really but see that jubilee line yeah yeah jubilee line uh horrible horrible uh piece of infrastructure yeah. but uh luckily i'm in manchester now where everything works it's clean uh, everyone's friendly um never rains mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, you know 
there's one of those like ex London refugees where I get priced out and have to move up north. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm just aggressively gentrifying my neighborhood. Yeah. Um yeah, I mean I love London, but London is like such a cunt to us. By us oh, I mean yeah. London. Yeah, that that's how I feel about it as a place. I feel um hmm. really um rejected and upset that it's so expensive and you can't live where you grew up. Hmm. Yeah, you you have to kind of move around and kind of chase be chased out of your neighborhood by gentrification and like yuppies moving in and it's yeah it's just it's it's like a hostile city to live in it feels angry with you yeah i completely but, agree completely agree but um so let's talk about the book though <laughs> um because that's what we're here for so let's get out the easy but kind of awkward thing first which is what is the book about like elevator pitch kind of thing I know, I know, I know that sucks. You've done it a million times, and it's always difficult, but God always do it. Okay, okay. Before I do the elevator pitch, I just want to say thank you so much for having me on and being Aww. so kind about the book and for reading it in the first place. And um, I really appreciate that. That's very cool. Thank you. Um, no other writers actually say that to me ever. Like, <laughs> like well, they should. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? Yeah. <laughs> Um, right, elevator pitch. Okay, so, um, okay, it's a book about two women, one's from South London, one's from Brazil, but the South London one is like her mom's from Brazil, and then they meet in 2016 when like shit's kicking off in Brazil with the impeachment of Juma and in the UK with. Brexit and all sorts and then um there's also this other subplot about that happens in Brazil during the dictatorship and like you only really realize like how this everyone's like interrelated to everyone at the end and yeah it's kind of about hopefully you know liberation and and that yeah (laughs) Yeah, that was going to be kind of my next question, which is not what it's about, but what it's about, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, like liberation is, yeah, probably a big theme. And um, it's also a fam- It's a, a family saga. I know that's probably a, a terrible way to, to phrase it, but it's, it's, it's a story of a, well, two families, really. They kind of come together through these uh, two women who meet in London. Uh, yeah, yeah, totally. And like, um yeah I really appreciate that distinction because I think I get um very irritated when people read it as a book that's good because like representation is the best politics we can hope for from our literature so when people are like Mm -hmm. oh it's so good it shows you know migrants or marginalized people and it's like no it's good because yeah they're the characters but it it's telling a story about liberation. That's why it's good, hopefully. Mm. Um, yeah. yeah, anyway. But um, so, yeah, it's kind of a family saga. Like I wanted the scope of it to feel kind of hefty and epic, but hopefully written in like a sort of experimental, accessible, like playing with the kind of millennial novel way and also playing with the kind of Latin American epic in a way. Mm. Um, yeah, those those were like the two things which I felt you meshed really well. So the millennial novel of like, okay, we we got we got to drink a shot when we say her name, but Sally Rooney, yeah. um, <laughs> and um, you know the the like big hefty millennial um, South American epics, the uh, your Borges, your um, I forget his name from a uh, Colombian magic realist guy. Uh, I should know him. But uh, that, you know, um, yeah, hundred years of solitude. Those, yeah, those kind yeah. of big, multi-generational uh, epics. Yeah, yeah. Which I mean, yeah. If you want the elevator pitch, it's just it's like those two things, which we which we love, melded together plus good politics. Yeah, that's the that's like the uh, algorithm that makes this book. Yeah. 
No, uh, yeah. Plus, it's, it's really yeah, it's experimentally written, but in a non, in not a off-putting way. Yeah, it's, hopefully, in like it's experimentally written, but like if you ever used MSN Messenger, you'll be like, yeah, it's fine, I get this, or like it's not yeah. intimidating or trolling me. Um, yeah, there was a good reads um, review that was like, it's like Ali Smith and Che Guevara's love child. <laughs> That's a that's a good review. That, I wish I could have done that. That should go on the cover next yeah. edition. I know uh, we don't generally put good good reads on covers, but uh, you know, if, <laughs> yeah. if, if, if merits it, then I think we should. So, um, just one little question: it, it's the the title at all reference to the uh, Borges story of the same name? Because it, it, it shares like zero uh, tonal or thematic things with that story. No, it's not really talking to that. I mean, like I, I, you know, I quite like Borges, um, but I'm not. I wouldn't say a super fan. Um, and no, it's not. It's mostly talking to, um, yeah, our guy Shakespeare, I guess. Yeah. And so, what what does the title mean in the context of the story, without giving too much away? Well, so what it's. Um, referring to I guess it's like a kind of concept that comes up several times in the book in different ways but also you see it in lots of other people's writing expressed in various different kind of phrases or whatever but I wanted to refer to the idea that like there are more things than like this like the way we're living now um so like um you know Lola Lola Olufemi talks about the otherwise in her experiments in imagining otherwise um there's you know the very common phrase like another world is possible um mm. i guess i'm kind of referring to the idea that like yeah there are more things than like um i guess specifically in particularly with one of the characters that grew up in the 90s and, and noughties under new labor you know there are more things than we dreamt of them right like you grow up thinking oh you know it'd be really good if maybe tuition fees are abolished or <laughs> be really good if um there was like a very um modest wealth redistribution um and I kind of wanted to sort of speak to that kind of widening of political horizons that mm. neoliberalism really doesn't want us to do oh. um, and like that's why I wanted to have this epic book that reached around generations and continents. Um, mm. Yeah, there, and there is what was particularly resonant for me when I was reading this, like at this particular time in our uh, hell world, is the there's a tension between the the liberal characters like uh, Femi and his uh, his boss, mm-hmm. and the more radical characters like your two main uh, women characters. They. And which has come up uh, a lot in the last few days with the whole Roe v. Wade thing in America. The liberals who want to march around with a sign that says uh, Leslie Nope would not like this or RBJ rules. And the other people who aren't on Twitter who are hopefully, as we talk, um, thinking about things that could maybe explode if you mix them together. Uh, a satire parody. Um <laughs> But uh, yeah, and essentially saying to the libs that there are actually more things than your very small Overton window that concentrates on the things like you say, maybe tuition fees will be abolished, maybe we'll get to uh, Mm. slight changes to the tax code. Mm. And yeah, just the opening up of possibilities and political horizons is massively, massively needed right now and so thanks <laughs> thanks for that um yeah like i say it, it was a, a breath of fresh air to see this happening in the millennial novel form which i, I know is like a fraught term but which to be fair you brought it up so i'm allowed to use it now <laughs> yeah but uh, so, what so for people you don't know who, who are maybe like our dork fans who've only been reading sci-fi or something what what do we mean by millennial novel when we say it yeah so 
it's a word which is like applied from the outside like I don't know how many people claim it um but it's technically true like I'm a millennial and this is a book that's mostly about millennials um so it's like descriptively it is a millennial novel I guess but um it's kind of come up like it's often associated with Sally Rooney but also particularly with um books by young by which I mean sort of like 30 and under but still millennial women and usually these books tend to be also about young women or maybe like one guy as well or something like a normal people um and these novels also tend to be sort of about interpersonal relationships so um and and I guess this is where like I suppose I'm like oh I want more from this type of novel but it's certainly not a complaint that's exclusive to the millennial novel but like um it's something that's been written about um by Eloise Hendy and there's god I forgot her name but there's another essay which is like about white millennial um like tv as well like talking about fleabag so there's definitely a kind of thing which is like sad millennial girl white girl fiction like sad crying white girl fiction like (laughs) <laughs> a whole book about like a mean ex-boyfriend or a book about and you know the protagonists will often also like oh I was I forgot to have dinner and have these sort of like very <laughs> kind of understated but sort of hugely st- like d- stressful to read about eating disorders and and you know often the authors will be very you'll stay their left wing or the characters might say their left wing but then like at most the book will show like a bit of financial hardship that's been overcome or something like that and certainly mm. what the books don't tend to do is like put forward any kind of vision for liberation or really ever show people sorry my cats just come and sit on me but ever show people who are like in the struggle mm. um so it might be like this character is a communist, but it'll never be like, this character did a direct action, for example. Yeah. Um, and I guess like that's where I wanted to be like, you know, I don't just want to re- write a book that people are like, wow, that was so relatable. I also had a shitty ex, right? Like I want people to yeah. be like, um, oh, that's a book that, um, like I don't want to make people cry or feel something or have just do a catharsis. Like I wanted to make people be like, fuck, like I'm going to go out into the streets and like join my local anti-raids group or whatever it is. Yeah, we're going to get to how you did that in a minute because I think the way you did it is very clever. Uh, but um, did you, a few months back, did you read an article by uh, Ash Sakar from um, Navarra Media about uh, how men, uh, millennial men, I assume, need to be reading more millennial sad girl crying and uh eating disorder novels and less books like specifically Vincent Bevin's Jakarta Method and uh, books like um, uh, books like the the, the Ministry of, for the Future by Kim Stanley Robinson which is about like if you haven't read it it's brilliant it's about mm. literally going out and <laughs> killing the people who are polluting the world before in order to um, reverse climate change it's like one of the most radical novels I've ever read, and yet it was yeah. chosen by Barack Obama as one of his favourite books of the year, last year. Um, yeah. So she has basically said, like, men, stop reading these silly novels about things like, um, you know, the Indonesian genocides and trying to stop climate change and read real stuff, real problems. Like, you know, will a lower middle class and upper middle class uh, Irish c- couple who are both very thin and beautiful uh, have a lot of sex or not much sex, um, you know, important stuff like that. Mm. Um, it, yeah, it it was. It, I thought about it a lot when I was reading this. I, I kind of want, I kind of want to send this book to her and see what she thinks. Uh, it, does it does it give uh, both sides uh, of uh, what she wants? Uh, will she think? Will she dismiss it as uh, not be, being serious because there isn't enough? Um, talking about relationships and eating disorders in it who knows but um so yeah, I, I, haven't, that... I haven't read that but is what what is she getting at there that like uh, it, it was published in gq and it's about like men didn't, don't read serious fiction literary fiction 
they yeah. read science, uh, sci-fi, and books about wars and stuff, which is uh, <coughs> a thing I've I've even read. I, I wrote a thing about it for a long time uh, about that thing a long time ago for Mel Magazine, I think it was, and um, and yeah, like on a sales level, yeah, men are more likely to buy a sports biography or a western or a sci-fi novel than a Sally Rooney book, but also, um, yeah. There's a whole thing about marketing to them. There's no uh, male influences like there is with Oprah mm. and Reese Witherspoon. Um, yeah, there's uh, there's re- there's big structural reasons for the fact that men don't read certain books and women read certain books. That um, Mr. Carr, who's usually very good on this stuff, kind of ignored. And we, it was it, it, the article was basically like, you know, m- men be playing video games and being silly while women do the really serious stuff. Um, I think that's, but, that's quite interesting to me because I think like maybe the general point that like men should read more books by women or men should look for radical fiction or non-fiction books by women I'm sure is true but yeah, 100%. Um, but I think what it maybe overlooks is that these literary fiction books by women are also products that are sold for a profit by huge corporations um, like they're they're very they're commodities they're slightly more complex than just a good thing in the world like mm. they're they're not developed in order to be for example like you know this and I'm saying this as a young woman who has a book out with a big publisher but like the kind of the sad girl trend is is one that exists because it makes money and I think like I don't know. I think it's worth interrogating why it exists and what it's doing rather than being like, look, they're by women and men should read them for that reason, if mm. if that makes sense. Um, like, I think it's very, I think there is a sort of very liberal expectation that is prevalent that if something is sort of emotionally convincing and evocative, it's good art or good literature. And mm. there's not, we don't really, we're not really good at asking a book like but what's the point of this book like was the point of this book literally just to make me feel sad and remind me of myself because if so like kind of so what Mm, yeah um so yes I don't think I've expressed myself super articulately but like I'm not yeah I don't know I think fuck catharsis basically (laughs) um Yeah. yeah it's a very um Liv Winter who's an amazing radical um poet and playwright has a play called the rise of the refrain which is about a a greek chorus that unionizes and there's a bit where they all shout at the audience like if you're just here for a good cry like you should want better for yourself um Mm -hmm. and (laughs) i agree with them (laughs) yeah and speaking of shouting uh that's one of the techniques among many that you use to break people out of the apathy that they might be, that they might you know come to this book thinking they're gonna see two girls be sad at each other for four hundred pages. Uh, it, it starts with a note to the to you, the reader, meaning me, the reader. Uh, when a song plays on the page, listen to it out loud. When the characters speak in chorus, when they read from the iPhone at meetings, speak out loud with them. Uh, have to admit, I didn't do that because I was like. Um, in a reading room at a library at the time when I was reading a good chunk of this and that they would not be happy if I had shouted you shut our borders we shut yours or stop deportations mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so yeah I, I've I have failed you uh, as what I'm saying but um, I did listen to a bit of the music and it's very good but what was the idea, idea between make uh, was the idea of making that demand of the reader that they actually you know, not just be sitting quietly with a nice book, but actually do something, like a physical thing. Yeah, so we have, I guess, again, it relates back to what I was just saying, I think. So, like, we have this idea of what we think a good book will do and what our relationship to a good book is. And it's like, um, the act of reading means that you escape the real world and you enter the world of a book and you're totally immersed in this fake world of the book this imaginary world um and then when you finish the book um you know you go back to your normal life and like I guess the kind of metaphor for that is like the line the witch in the wardrobe 
right? Like you go through the wardrobe and you're in Narnia, then you exit the wardrobe and you're back in wherever they were. But, um, and I like wanted to disrupt that way of reading because like I said, like I don't want to produce books that allow catharsis or voyeurism into like a sad, tragic life of some marginalized person or, or, or even sort of voyeuristic voyeurism with your own trauma, right? Like just to wallow in it. I don't want to do that. What I want is a book which is really rooted in the real world, a book that reminds you you're in the real world and like changes your relationship to it. So for example, like when you read out loud, like you invite the world into the room that you're in. Um, you know, if you play music, you're in the room that you're in and you kind of think about your body. How easy would it be to dance where I am? The library, okay, not that easy. Um, or to say out loud. And I wanted to say to the reader, like, you know, you're in the real world. This book that you're reading about revolutionaries who travel Brazil in the 70s, that's the world you're in too. Like the things that they're doing are things that you can do too. Like it's not, and that's what I mean by wanting to like make the reader take to the streets and join their local anti-raids group um, or whatever. Like I want them to take that feeling of possibility of widened political horizons that hopefully exists in the text and realise that it exists in their world as well. And speaking of uh, politics in the real world, it says uh, in the back page, you're also a part-time organiser. Um, is there any particular thing you're organised around right now? Is there a particular cause you're attached to? Um, yeah, so I'm doing like climate justice work and my background's like always been kind of like domestic violence, that kind of thing. So this is kind of new for me. Um, and I'm working with this group in... Um, South East London called the Stop the Silvertown Tunnel Coalition. And the Silvertown Tunnel is this horrible project that Sadiq Khan is backing, but it's a Boris Johnson era project. And it's a new four lane tunnel that will go under the Thames and have one lane just for HGVs. Um, and it will send loads and loads of more traffic and air pollution into like London's poorest, mm. most like black and brown and already most polluted neighbourhoods. So, yeah. Um, yeah, fuck the Silvertown Tunnel. <laughs> yeah, I, like I, I thought like London's whole thing was reducing cars, congestion taxes. You know, it's got such great public transport, as we mentioned earlier, um, except for the Jubilee Line. Um, <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't think they'd, they'd be doing much in the way of building new roads and stuff, especially tunnels under the Thames, which must cost an incredible amount. It's, um, yeah, it's costing 2.2 billion. Sadiq Khan's whole ooh. thing is like, adult asthma right and um uh yeah it's like a pfi project so it's six private companies that are building it and managing it and yeah. and some of them are involved in fossil fuel projects displacing indigenous people in australia and texas like it's just um bad in in all the ways yeah i've, I've never heard of this so yeah thanks for putting me on to that um have a have a little i'll see if i can put uh, links to any uh, stuff in the show description for folks at home who might want to get involved in that but um so we'll come up to, uh, yeah no, no problem i was trying to help help out guests wherever i can um so we're up about halfway so that means uh the folks at home get to hear some music so i kind of wanted to semi theme around the the politics of the book and, and, and the feeling of the book as well so I picked a, a new song coming out by the band Cloud Rat from uh, the US. They are ostensibly a grindcore band, but if you think they're going to sound like you know Napalm Death or whoever, then very wrong. Uh, they are, like this book, very emotive, but also highly politically charged. They've got um, a lot of good like queer themes in their music. A lot of, like, uh, there's... They are very rare in being a female-led band in a very macho genre. Um, and they're much more artistic than you'd find in a lot of bands who are like, you know, we'll slam our instruments against the wall for five seconds, call it a song, do that 30 times, that's an album. Um, yeah, Cloud Rat is just an amazing band and got a new album out very shortly. They've been on a kind of productivity streak this year with like, like three different albums out. All of them great. Um, really love these guys. So here is one of the first uh, tracks being released off 
of these records. Cloudwrap with a song of their new record that's coming out in October of all times. It's like kind of a big preview we've done there. Um, there'll be more music at the end of the show, but for now we're talking to uh, Yara Rodriguez Fowler about There Are More Things. Uh, and um, so one of the things I wanted to pick up on is I think this is the first like english brazilian novel i've ever read it's definitely not mm. the first brazilian novel definitely by far not the first english novel but um i just w- want to pick your brain about brazil for a little while because that's something we hear very little about in in the uk mm. it's a major theme in in the book it's politics uh, during the 1970s where there was you know, um, a dictatorship uh there was uh, like real uh, resistance movements going on there and one several of the characters are part of that and a big mm. chunk of the book is them uh, on the run um mm. so yeah what, um it sounds uh simple but what is the what is happening in brazil right now because uh last i checked um was bolsonaro is still there but it may be tenuous and he may be on his way out. Yeah, so touch wood, touch whatever you've got near you. But um, it looks like Lula's going to win the mm-hmm. elections in November. Um, some polls are saying he could win outright in the first round because they have like like the French system where there's two rounds. All right. Mm-hmm. And some polls showing that it'll be, you know, 50-50, 50 him and then everyone else. Um, and like the kind of smaller socialist party have already come out saying vote for Lula. Hmm. Um, and um, yeah, so it looks like it will get a bit better. It will get better. Yeah. <laughs> Is that the right answer? I mean, there's still, you know, um, Bruno Pereira and Dom Phillips um, went, were murdered in the Amazon very recently. Dom Phillips is a British journalist and um, Bruno was um, like an indigenous special, an indigenous special, he's not indigenous, but a specialist in, in like indigeneity, I suppose, um, uh, who was with him. And it looks like they were killed by kind of people doing illegal displacement of indigenous people in the area in order to do extraction 
deforestation or whatever. Um, so, and there's just, we know about them because he's British, but hmm. indigenous people are being killed like that every day. Um, and that has got worse under Bolsonaro for various reasons. Um, but hmm. it, it is something that has happened. There has never been like a left that has really protected indigenous people in Brazil um, or, or black people. And um, I mean, the, the left has certainly been, better particularly in terms of like reducing poverty but um what's something i realized when i was researching the dictatorship for the book um and and there are some really good resources like there in 2014 there was a, a truth commission report that was produced by the government about crimes of the state in that era um and it's a really good document it's in portuguese but what i realized is you know the, the dictatorship was extreme and very bad state repression um, but, you know, state violence didn't begin or end with the dictatorship and particularly against black and indigenous Brazilians. There's huge police violence against black Brazilians now and indigenous um, Brazilians. So that's something I was thinking about a lot. And then also making links to state violence here, you know, like Yarlswood, deportations, you know, all kinds of things so mm. yeah i noticed you mentioned um, the uh, killing yeah. of mark duggan as well in this yeah. uh, this country and the riots that happened after mm. Mm. yeah, yeah. A... And it... so um something that i've always thought was a bit sort of silly and funny is like they're um maybe not funny ironic i don't know but there's um these two brazilian musicians who were exiled um I think in 1969, and came to live in London, Caetano Veloso and Gilberto Gil. They were exiled, exiled because they said some political stuff at a concert. Um, and they came to live in London. And, you know, they were walking around thinking, oh, London's so nice. And there's a song called London, London, where it's like, I smile at a policeman, a policeman I smile at a policeman, I am so pleased to see him, or something like that. <laughs> you know, this is a few years after the Notting Hill riots, you know what I mean? Like there's a real <laughs> not linking up of what's state violence, I guess, in the two countries. And I guess they're not plugged into the right communities. But I remember kind of reading that and being like, oh, um, I guess like I could see all these connections. And that was part of why I wanted to write about both places at once is be like, look, particularly thinking about these two main characters who are both born sort of like around the time of that, fall of the Berlin Wall and the end of the USSR. There's this sort of, in both countries, in 97 here and in 2001 in Brazil, these kind of, you know, the workers' parties come into power and there's this great feeling of optimism. And then, you know, actually we get neoliberalism and, and that's oversimplifying it. And then we both end up in these sort of extremely tumultuous political places around 2016, 17, um, and yeah, I find it really interesting that the kind of waves in the two countries actually feel kind of linked or similar. Mm. Um, and yes, anyway, and obviously my family's Brazilian, so that, that's something that I was thinking about and I'm always thinking about. Yeah, I mean, it. there was, as you say, this these waves that happened not just in uh, the UK and Brazil, but the whole world, mm. obviously the US. Yeah. But you can pretty much... Uh, throw a dart in a map and find a similar story playing out in virtually every country on earth mm. uh, it's been yeah it re vindicates the idea of dialectics it's like every mm. reaction has a equal and opposite yeah. reaction everywhere mm. around the earth you get a neoliberal government they fail they don't live up to their promises then you get a, a, a quote-unquote populist government yeah. in, you know the Trumps and Bolsonaro's and uh, Johnson's. Um, yeah. yeah, it's uh, what it, to go back to something you said actually in the first part that, that you'd you'd moved from domestic violence to um, environmental justice, mm. and that instantly what instantly popped into my head was a uh, something that Bolsonaro said about um, you know that's. Uh, taking care of the Brazilian rainforest was gay. Like he dismissed right. it as, yeah, he dismissed it as gay, meaning effeminate. Yeah. Um, and just the, the very like 
that was probably the most mask off moment of the link between male sexual um uh patriarchy if you want to put mm. it in a simple way and environmental destruction just the idea of the bodies of women and the bodies of a forest or a rainforest or the climate itself are for male consumption mm. and if the those bodies say no uh, then mm. violence is then used on them to bring them back in line and which brings us all the way to, to now to Roe Ro, Ro v. Wade in the US and the these links between the the whole thing it's um it's uh yeah so essentially what i'm saying is you're not uh gone to a different side you've gone to a different front in the same war and that's on um well i wouldn't say it's on men but it's uh we're certainly not the good guys in that war (laughs) yeah probably not (laughs) Um, no, I agree with you, and it's about, I guess, resisting like domination, and um, yeah, I guess state violence. Like, I think I don't know. I think I keep coming back to state violence, but that's yeah, just what I have on my brain all the time, um, mm. and corporations as well, um, particularly in the rainforest. But um, yeah. Yeah, and so sorry go on no you you go ahead <laughs> so yeah i wanted to kind of circle back but not quite to how literature can be part of that resistance mm. and um yeah is it is it possible to write in, a, in such a way that it's the writing itself is not simply a product to be consumed and whether something truly can you know, break people out of their apathy. We've seen people like um, uh, Dos Passos in the US, in like the mm. kind of high modernist who wrote these very experimental works that there was no real main characters. It was about a society, not individuals. And um, your work is very much about individuals. Uh, there are quite a few of them, but it's not a, in the same way about. Mm. the movement of society of a society it, like can you make individual fiction that has this like uh, millennial novel sheen to it but it's also going to be politically good but politically um, active and you know, give us the things we need to to wake up a little bit um i think that's such a good question around like the the idea of the novel was like the story of an individual and then how, but how can we make it speak to the collective? And that is something I think about a lot. And I think it is one of the problems with um, the kind of like dominant Anglo-American style of novel is that it's this kind of, yeah, very digestible and easy to follow story of an individual that has a neat beginning, a middle and an end. Um, and that kind of closure also, again, I think encourages you to close the book and get on with your life. Um, and yeah, I do. And and again, the other thing is, and this relates back to what we were saying before, but the problem also is that with kind of saying, oh, why don't we read more? Why don't men read more popular millennial fiction? Is that obviously like the most risk taking and radical fiction is actually not stuff published by big publishers, generally speaking and not the easiest stuff to get published. Um, so it would be like, you know, the Novara media of fiction isn't going to be on the BBC, I suppose, is what I'm trying, what is kind of the frustrating double standard there. Um, and yeah, I'm not sure, because I think you do have obviously like novels that are about multiple people, um, like Middlemarch, where they are trying to be like, look, this is about society, but like you can have your favorite character or whatever, right? Or you can like care about whether Dorothea ends up with Mr. Kalsaborn or whatever his name is, um, or like Ulysses or whatever. Um, and so I think I was trying to to create something where I was like, you know, obviously I want to get published and paid. So yeah, there are main characters and like 
they're young and like they're having sex and you know the people that buy my books will relate to them hopefully and there's like that kind of there's that main narrative which is that but they are also you know doing direct actions and talking about deportation and making fun of their Blairite bosses and whatnot and you know being queer and using vibrators you know there is you know that (laughs) that side to it but I guess I also wanted to disrupt that by saying like yeah, there are lots of characters. They have all these sort of fraying, the sort of whatever, the tapestry of the novel is all frayed. Like you don't know the characters all weave in and out of each other. And something I wanted to explore with the secondary plot and without giving away too many spoilers is this idea that you might not necessarily know exactly what the relation is that you have to your political foremothers, um, but you just have to believe that you are carrying on their work Mm -hmm. um, and that there is that thread between you, whether it's a blood tie or a political tie, some kind of lineage. Um, And you have to kind of believe that they are dreaming of you finishing off their work of liberation and so on. Um, And so, yeah, I don't know. Hopefully I was trying in that way to try and do something that kind of uses all of the tools that the novel of the individual has laid out, I guess. Um, But that shows a kind of big landscape um, Mm -hmm. and kind of a hopeful one and one that suggests that we are all implicated in each other's lives and don't exist as individuals so I don't know how successful it is or you know whether how will impact people or people want to read it but that's how I was I'd say it it, um it gets it exactly right it's uh yeah it's a third bowl of porridge not too hot not too cold (laughs) because um that whole uh socialist novel of the of a society uh like Dos Passo wrote in the USA trilogy and so on. It's, I, it's, it's fun as like a modernist experimental thing, but you kind of don't really want to read it that much. It's, um, it can only go so far. And we are at the end of the day, individuals. There's no mm. kind of getting around that. I, if I was writing down, I'd be like writing, I am talking to Gara Rodriguez Fowler on a podcast right now. And mm. my whole life could be, written out as a long stream of consciousness uh, that wouldn't include you as your stream of consciousness. It wouldn't include Donald Trump's stream of consciousness. We are individuals at the end of the day. So I don't think it's, it's a, it's politically wrong to have an individual, have a novel centered on individuals um, Mm -hmm. and to, to talk about them because it's, it's what we can, it's the thing we can most relate to because we, we live in it hundred percent of our lives. Mm. Uh, I, I've never experienced being part being a cl- in a collective. I've literally only ever experienced being an individual person. Mm. It's um. So I, I think it's. I think it's absolutely hundred percent fine to be doing novels like this, and and to have that gesture or no, no, more than gesture in this, but to have that larger social thing is is. Like that's the perfect, that's the sweet spot you want to get in with a novel, I think. And I think you've hit that, which is why I'm talking oh. to you right now. So, um, I'm so glad. Yeah. Um, what's what was your favorite bit? Uh, I I really liked the part in Brazil because oh, it yeah. was, uh, yeah, just uh, like I have ADHD, so long streams of text and not uh, yeah. really work for me too well, and a nice little like maybe two and a half page maximum little, little chunks that's that I like and it was um I mean it, it may be the most experimental part of the, of the novel in terms of form and formats um in terms of not quite knowing who's speaking at certain times which reminded me quite a lot of like stuff like uh JR because um yeah, one of the things you do is not put speech, little speech mm. marks around your text, which uh, sometimes I hate. Like uh, yes. the only, only thing I don't like about um, Blood Meridian is Cormac McCarthy does that in it. Everything else, great, but uh, yeah, 
put some down speech marks on it. But uh, this worked because it kind of it fit it refits with the the feel and the theme. Like mm. um, just from the very first page where these two women are. So to give some context to the listener here, um, one woman, Laura, uh, has um, been part of like a a shootout with the police and has killed supposedly killed a police officer and is now on the run with a another woman who's kind of like a it's like a fixer for the revolutionary underground is kind of drive her out to somewhere she'll be safe to various like safe houses it's, it's a very like uh, sweaty 70s political thriller territory we're in right now yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> which which i really love I, I love those like um there's stuff about like revolutionaries and safe houses and bomb making and stuff um and yeah it's just the the way you conjure that like underground worlds of like meeting in dark alleys and getting a car with someone who for you know maybe about to shoot you and get in you will drive i will drive how far this is like punchy little Mm. step it's a dialogue that aren't attributed to anyone there's no she said this she said that mm-hmm. it's uh yeah that, that just really worked to evoke that that world that they're moving in and yeah i'm making it sound like you've you've written like a little spy novel in here but it's uh, it's also like there's a love story there's it's only about well like 300 like 80 pages uh, yeah and but there's also parts in like uh, where you list all the indigenous tribes of Brazil for yeah. like four pages. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, which is, you know, people could dismiss that as a gimmick. I think it's cool as hell because it's, um, we're just having the pit, first picture of the uh, the earth and the moon in mm. there as well because this is taking place contemporaneously with the first polar landings. Yeah, that... Uh, that whole part was really stuck out to me and maybe it's just a wish fulfillment thing because you know kind of you know uh parody satire we should be doing this kind of shit right now and if we did it a bit more and posted on the internet a lot less then we might not be in the mess we're in um but um yeah it's just a brilliant brilliant section in an otherwise also brilliant book um no, so, I, I think it's it's my favorite bit too. Oh, good. Yeah, yeah. It, it's good when like it's. I know from I aborted attempts of writing things that mm-hmm. if you genuinely enjoy what you're writing, then it will be way better than the stuff you think you need to just get out just to keep the plot moving. And um, yeah, I think so. yeah. Like um, I said, it was very very good uh, section. If if you um I'm going to tell you a bit about like one of the texts that I used to research that bit because if you enjoyed that maybe like you'll find the story of it fun. Mm-hmm. So like I was just like reading around a lot obviously that era and it was um during lockdown so I couldn't like go to Brazil or anything and um there was this bit that I knew I had to look into a lot which was um um the guerrilla de Araguaia which is when like these rather than being like urban guerrillas, they were interested in like the rural fight. And mm-hmm. so they they were like seriously armed and went into the forest to try and establish a liberated zone. Um, but it's like, it's like as if like, well, I don't know loads about you, but I think it's like as if me and you like bought Kalashnikovs and like went into the forest. Like we wouldn't actually I'll, be like- I'm, I'm there, I'll do it. Right, I'm getting <laughs> on the train. But like, you okay. know- these- It'll be like one day you're like, yeah, I'm doing a geography degree. And next day you're like, okay, I'm in the forest. You know, like they were completely actually not equipped to fight the army or anything. Mm-hmm. But anyway, um, they survived there, I think, for about three or four years and then like, uh, you know, completely killed and destroyed. But um, there's, yeah, I was reading about it. And then I found this text online, which was published by like a left-wing Brazilian magazine, Carta Capital, in 2011. And it's just published as like a PDF or something. And it's the diary of a guy who was one of the commanders there and he was killed. And this diary was seized by the military police and leaked by a journalist in 2011. And I emailed him being like, oh my God, this is incredible. How did you get it? And he was like, I obviously can't tell you that. And I was like, okay, fair enough. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's incredible because it's 
it's uh, talking about like every day what happened and the kind of parties they had and like one day they all had diarrhea because they weren't used to eating cashew nuts (laughs) no like or like so there's a scene in the book where they go to this area and they have a party and that's like based on the accounts of the parties that they would have in this liberated zone they were trying to establish um and it would be like you know someone comes with a turtle someone came to roast or someone (laughs) came with and it was just incredible to read that text um yeah yeah there's there's similar books about the uh Bader-Meinhof group or Red Army Faction I should call them their actual name not their press Mm. name in Germany and how they'd be like hanging out with these like radical left-wing filmmakers like Michael Henk and uh, mm. how they'd be like having crazy parties and orgies and stuff. And it just makes that sound, that lifestyle sounds so much fun. Like you, could go, <laughs> you could go blow up a, a newspaper uh, printing place one day and then next day you're uh, doing ecstasy on a rooftop with oh, those wow. topless Germans and stuff. You know, it's just like, it just sounds like a great lifestyle. That sounds more fun than than I think the forest lifestyle was. In oh yeah, Brazil. they're like the whole yeah. cashews and diarrhea bit. That's uh, <laughs> yeah. I don't never grill a turtle. You'd, you'd, I'd rather uh, collaborate with the fascist oligarchy than eat a turtle. Turtles are lovely yeah. animals. <laughs> but um, yeah, like, like I said, it's a it's a really fun part of the book. Um, I know it's a very serious subject matter, but it's mm. uh, written in such a way that it's just, yeah, it, it really gets to that part of the world and this, like, disappeared lifestyle of being a professional revolutionary mm. Um, mm. that is just, yeah, I think people, I, I really hope that resonates with lots of other people too because it's, um, it's like an important part of the, of the book, very important part of the book and one which the reviewers of the book so far I've read haven't actually touched on. They seem to just skip that bit. I, yes. I half suspect re- reviewers just read the first hundred pages because that's a. Uh... Um, I found that really interesting because I've also noticed that as well, and I just assumed that reviewers from the UK just don't know how to talk about it and feel much more comfortable being like, "Yeah, millennial characters, mm, cool." We yeah. Don't know about that. Um, and they just don't know what to say <laughs> or how to talk about Brazil, really, let alone um, Brazil in the 1970s. Yeah, I mean, the, the glass half full interpretation is they're just they're trying not to step on toes or say something stupid or ignorant or racist about something yeah. they, they know they don't know much about. But um, mm. glass half empty is they only wrote, read the first hundred pages in a press release. And they, they probably just resonate a lot more with yeah, millennials in crazy office environments with a dickhead boss and then going to the pub yeah. afterwards, yeah. which is a perfectly adequate um, thing to write about because that's, that's my life too. I mean, it did, yeah. like, pretty much all of Melissa's like day-to-day is just me. You just yeah. change your name and that's just, just my life of when I was living it's, in London. And yeah, it's I had a really much funny worse because... boss though. It's really, yeah, it's really funny because, um, like, I, I don't know what you think, but th- there's this depiction of Melissa who goes to work for her, like, centrist dad boss, and, like, he just talks all the time and rants at them, and they have to listen to it because he's their boss, and that's how life is. And mm-hmm. I think that those bits are funny. And, funny. Right, and you think they're funny. Um, but I think that all people who... Are, some people don't think they're funny at all, and I think those people are centrist dads, and that's oh, why they don't. Hundred percent. Yeah, yeah. They, they simply do not. They would love this guy if they met him. They want to yeah. go to harvest <laughs> together in their Jaguars, yeah. and um, but uh, yeah, <laughs> um, having worked for many of these people, and probably working for a little bit of them now, um, uh, my bosses stop listening. Um, <laughs> yeah you, you nailed that type of guy that's definitely a type of guy and yeah. there's a lot of them and i i think uh femi as well is a um he's a guy i meet a lot too the guy yeah, who I mean, probably I'm should know sure. better 
Yeah, exactly right. And and towards the novel, I tried to give him a bit of a redemption arc, like in terms of coming around to the politics of of Melissa and Katerina. But like, he is someone we know, someone who's like a fantastic friend, um, like always there for you and experienced like whatever type of oppression himself, um, but has just like bought the centrist meritocracy kind of bullshit. Um, Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know anyone like that, Al. Um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah. So we're coming up to time. So um, what are you working on next? What's what's coming up? I mean, you're, you're nominated for an Orwell Prize, right? Yes, yes. So potentially you, you could be on stage with George Orwell himself giving you a prize. <laughs> yeah. Popular can... MI5 assets, George Orwell. Yeah. Um, <laughs> They um they asked us to um send the the prize people like our favorite political books and they were gonna pitch all our recommendations as an article. So I was like, Yeah, you should read Revolting Prostitutes, it's really good. It is good. And it's fantastic. And Molly Smith loved this book as well. There are more things, FYI. But anyway, <laughs> and then they and then I saw the article and it's like the first person is Dominic Cummings recommending some book. Oh. <laughs> And you scroll down, reading like, oh, revolting prostitute. (laughs) Um, Anyway, so, uh, yes. Yeah. What what book did he recommend? Um, I forgot. It's it's about, like, some old German guy, I think. Hitler. Um, (laughs) uh, I I better know which old German guy, but that's probably political deep talk we don't need to be going into right now. Yeah, Dominic um, Cummins is very much one of my least favorite people. I've, he, he's very inconsequential nowadays. He doesn't do much yeah. bad, but he's a very annoying person. Um, yeah, I think he's he's really got zero out of ten energy, like real bad vibes. Um, oh, horrible vibes! Yeah, he, he's yeah. A, he's like a evil centrist dad. Like, yeah, he doesn't I just agree. have the shitty politics. He he's like into like no. Mencius Molberg and like these weird near reactionaries and like uh, yeah. horrible no, I, horrible I, vibes. I, 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 Plus, <laughs> plus bald so you know even yeah. his hair hates him yeah it's, um, it's 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 escaped him um yeah. yeah what my so yeah who knows it's like there are like eight other books so it's statistically unlikely to win but um would so that's happening and then um yeah I'm working I'm gonna apply for a grant to start work on this next thing which um it's gonna sound a bit crazy but like kind of want to write something a bit like the Argonauts but about Princess Diana and kind of thinking about state violence and violence against women and Princess Diana okay that's awesome okay <laughs> sorry how, how, okay how, how does this work like the Argonauts but Princess Diana like yeah like the story explain. of Princess Diana but also like abolish the state that's kind of where it's going <laughs> I'm very much looking forward to this okay great Whenever um, we, we have, I, whenever I like a book, I always get the author on, and they always talk about some some book they're working on in the future that's going to be that's like sounds completely insane, but it sounds like it's so my my thing. And I'm so glad that, again. This, again, that's very much that's very much my shit. So mm-hmm. please write your Princess Diana Argonauts book and come back on the show and uh, talk about that because I'm sure it'll be I'm sure yeah, it'll be completely insane. I want it. <laughs> okay well you know your enthusiasm means a lot because i have to motivate through myself through the actual writing of it now so yeah, yeah that's always the worst you. part mm-hmm. but um yeah folks at home do go read there are more things yeah, even if you're in america and you don't get like deep london law like the brixton mcdonald's and stuff like that um <laughs> see londoners know but um no it's, it's one of the most chaotic mcdonald's <laughs> It has amazing energy. It's like an aura. It's like a nexus of uh, chaotic energy in that McDonald's. It's brilliant. Uh, But um, yeah, folks at home, do give this a a go. It's. I know it's chunky, but please just bear with it. It's so much fun. It's. It's. I read this much quicker than I would a book about quarter of its size. It's just really fun, punchy, just great. So. Next show up, uh, me and um, 
Me and Alison Rumfit are going to be talking about the new uh, Atesha Mosfeg book, Lapvona, uh, which is about mainly about shit. It's a lot of lot of poop in that book. A lot of doo doo. Uh, also PP, and um, we're going to be uh, talking to Elle Nash about her new book, uh, which is about MySpace and bulimia. It's really good. Uh, but first, here's a song by a band out of the US, another experimental grindcore band. Uh, these guys are called Null. They're from Tennessee. They're, yeah, they're just all over the place. Just experimental grindcore tells you pretty much everything you need to know. Just crazy shit. Uh, beautiful, beautiful t-shirts as well. So go on their Bandcamp page and get yourself a, a Null. Get yourself some Null drip. Um, this is being produced by Kurt Ballou from um, Converge. So you, you know it's got that little stamp of integrity from him. But it's, uh, yeah, uh, it's coming out three days ago. Uh, so, yeah, check out Noll. Going to play a song of it called Throw of Upheaval. Uh, the album is called Metempiric. Does metal bands be just inventing words now? And, um, yeah, come back next week for more crazy shit. Uh, read Daryl more things. Here's Noel. <laughs> 